0: Hello there, Al Murray here. Now, as one or two of you may know, I'm partial to a glass or two of an evening. Sometimes beer, quite often these days, wine. In fact, wine has appeared more than once in the pod, from stories of British soldiers discovering a hidden stash as they crossed the Rhine, to James and I trying a bottle of Ukrainian sweet wine, bottled in 1939 and spirited away as the Germans approached in 1941. And now, as a listener to We Have Ways, you can enjoy a free case of wine, courtesy of our good friends at Wine 52. All you need to do is go to wine52.com ways and cover the postage costs of £9.95 and you'll get three bottles delivered to your door. I absolutely love trying wines from different countries and Wine 52 showcases revered regions like Bordeaux and Emilia-Romagna, but also exceptional wines from countries like Georgia and Bulgaria. This fantastic wine club takes you on an incredible odyssey through the world of wine. You can have the choice of mixed, red only or white only cases and you also get Glug magazine, which delves into each region's wine culture plus two tasty snacks. Your welcome case will include the beautiful Meridiano by Compagna Mediterranea del Vino, a complex red with notes of blackberry, cherry and plum jam on the nose, and a lovely white wine called Lucasia by Agrestivini, a light and crisp wine with fresh notes of gooseberry, honeysuckle and jasmine. After your free case, you'll join the monthly wine club. No minimum commitment. If it's not for you, pause or cancel at any time. So remember, that's wine52.com slash ways to claim your free case of wine today. Enjoy.
3: Actung, Acton, Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and with a very, very special guest today, Professor Dick Jesser, who spent 70 years working at CU Boulder, uh, that's Colorado University in Boulder, as uh, a professor of behavioural science. But before that, back in the war, he was in the US Marines, and he was one of the survivors of that terrible Battle of Iwo Jima. So... Dick, thank you so much for coming on. It's a it's a privilege to see you.
1: It's great to see you, James. Dick, if you don't mind, can we
3: just sort of go back to the back to the very beginning? Yeah, about where you were born and brought up and your family and what your father did and all that sort of thing.
1: Okay. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, in nineteen twenty-four. My father was a merchant seaman and a house painter. Uh, they had come from Russia uh some time when they were just young and uh, we lived in uh brooklyn i was since I was born in nineteen twenty four We began to experience the great depression that then led my father to be out of work, and he was able to arrange to be a caretaker for a a farm, actually 160 acres of apple and peach orchard in Pennsylvania. And so we moved to a farm and I did my elementary school in a one room country schoolhouse and graduated from that schoolhouse and began high school in Quakertown. And my parents were concerned that I couldn't get a good education if we were not in New York City. So by the time the mid to late depression, we moved back to Manhattan and uh, Mm -hmm. I started at George Washington High School and they found that my education was further ahead than where they were. And so they they actually skipped me a grade when I came to uh, Manhattan. And then I graduated from that high school and began to attend what was City College then, now is City University of New York. The war had broken out in December 7th, 1941. And I was a student at City College.
3: So, Dick, sorry to interrupt, but you know, it sounds to me like you were, you know, a fairly humble background. Um, you know, you're living through the Depression. There's not a lot of money. I mean, was it? Was it a struggle to get to college?
1: Well, it was. Even though City College was free, right? That didn't mean that the family needed support. So, my older brother never got to college. He had to go to work and uh, I had the privilege of attending City College. It was a year after I began that I decided to enlist in the United States Navy.
3: And were your parents okay about this? I mean, what did they say about it?
1: They, They were fine with it. They assumed that nothing would happen. I would just be Enlisted. And so I went downtown in Manhattan to enlist in the Navy, found the office, and the office door to the Navy recruitment office was closed. The office door next door to the United States Marine Corps was open. And it was totally adventitious that I became. Uh, enlisted in the United States Marines on uh, December eleventh, nineteen
3: forty-two. That's amazing. So, where, so did you join the go for the Navy because your father had been a, a sailor? It's sort of in the blood.
1: Yes, and I also thought it was safer. All I knew about the Marines was that it was a ground unit and it was more likely to to have difficulties. So, nevertheless. Uh, since the door was open, uh, I enlisted.
3: You thought, "What the heck?" And you you joined. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how many other people just sort of. I mean, it is amazing because I've spoken to a number of veterans, right, and and quite often they end up in taking a you know taking a route j- through through happenstance or some little bit of serendipity or story like yours where one door's shut and the other one's open. I mean, it's incredible, really. And I suppose to a certain extent, that's the kind of optimism of youth, isn't it? And the the kind of, you know, I mean, what what does anyone know about anything when you're that age in a way?
1: Yeah. Oh, I think that's true. Nevertheless, you do have values and you do have commitments. And to to some extent, that was what was animating me. I, I really felt I had a participant's role to play.
3: Right, you felt it was your uh, sort of moral duty. Yes, to...
1: yes, it was the war against the Nazis as well as the Japanese, and so that's how it all started.
3: But just go very quickly. Just go back to your your upbringing. I mean, that's quite a thing of your parents to do. To you know, to to have moved to Pennsylvania to have this new career on a farm and then to pack it all in again and head back to New York. I mean, quite a brave decision, do you think?
1: Well, it was really uh, the issue of opportunity for my uh, family because while we were on the farm, my father kept up his uh, merchant marine life. And so he was away a lot of the time. Whereas once we moved to Manhattan and he was able to get a job in the Bethlehem steel yards across the Hudson in New Jersey. So yeah. we had a father at home.
3: Oh, okay. So that was much better. And you you mentioned an older brother. Was it just the two of you? Or yes, were other it was the
1: two of us. And my older brother, ultimately, uh, wound up in the army, in combat, in uh, Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia. He was a tank driver. So at one, oh at one time, my mother had two gold stars hanging in the window, and uh, she really had... Uh, A difficult time with both of us to worry about.
3: Yeah, the gold star. um, The gold stars is it's it's an interesting thing. It's not something that happened in the UK, but but it was a it was a important thing in America, wasn't it? This idea that that you hung your star up if you've got children or husbands or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Serving overseas just to kind of show that you're doing your bit.
1: Well, I think it was a sense of participating, as you say. Doing your mm. little bit, but really feeling that at the time that the war was worthwhile. Yeah, and your
3: parents—you said they they they'd emigrated to the United States from Russia. I mean, what, did they leave before the revolution or? or...
1: Yes, they did. Uh, I I actually never f- really knew the date of their arrival, but it was before the revolution, and they lived in a small town in the Ukraine and their village was subject to the cossacks riding through the village and and uh, slaughtering people from time to time
3: goodness me so did they speak um, did they speak english or uh, at home or
1: no, they spoke English as much as they could. Uh, Russian was the secret language for the parents. Unfortunately, as I realized later in life, it would have been wonderful to have another language, but the Russian language was used for private, intimate conversations between the parents. So. All
3: right. So you joined up in December 1942, I think you said.
1: Yes. December 11th, 1942.
3: So you're just 18 years old. Yes. And how was how was training and where were you packed off to?
1: Well, it's very interesting. Since I was a college student, the Marines wanted to continue my training. Here I was a student at City College, which was free for essentially mm-hmm. for those of us who were not very privileged. The Marines sent me to Yale. And the contrast between uh, a university for essentially underprivileged people and Yale, a university for very privileged people, it was quite a transition.
3: And do you know why they sent you there? What, What was the thinking? I mean, you'd thought they'd just want to train you up as quickly as possible.
1: They wanted to train us up for officer's status. Ah, So I spent a year and a half, I think, there and then was sent to Paris Island for boot camp.
3: And incidentally, what were you studying, Dick? What were you studying at college?
1: I began studying psychology very early because I had read a lot of psychology, especially Freud and so on, Mm. uh, as a late adolescent.
3: So up until that, all the time at Yale, you're just doing... Academic,
1: yes, with tuition, with some required subjects like engineering, drawing, and thing, map reading, and things like that. But otherwise, I continued my studies of psychology.
3: And and you weren't having to kind of run twenty miles and all that kind well, of stuff. Well,
1: we had uh, yeah, we had officer training kinds of activities. Uh, but
3: oh, okay. So then boot camp.
1: Then boot camp. And in boot camp, they used boot camp to select who was going to go on to officer training. So it was a selection operation for those to go on. And they had all sorts of uh, athletic, very demanding activities. And apparently, I was not a success in that regard. And so I was screened out of... The idea of going on to officer training, and was sent to Camp Lejeune for regular uh, further boot camp training and training as a, as a private.
3: Were, were you were you disappointed, or, or did you sort of take it on the chin?
1: I just took it. I figured I, they were moving my life around, and I would just go with it and see what what happens. And in light of what happened later on, I'm very happy that I was not an officer. (laughs) Yeah, I can can bet.
3: Okay, so you you continue your training and are are you sort of settling in well and making friends and so on? Yes,
1: yeah. Training at Camp Lejeune was tough. I mean, it involved 25-mile uh, hikes with full packs and no allowance for water. The idea was to, uh, was called water discipline, and that was to learn to get along without water, as stupid a thing as I could possibly believe in in light of what we know about human behavior. But in, in any case, it, it was that kind of training. And until they felt, that we were ready for overseas shipment. And so...
3: Oh, uh, take. sorry, just, just, just to avoid that, you know, the, the, you're doing weapons training. Is it just infantry training effectively as Marines or are you ever working alongside, the, you know, training alongside artillery and tanks and stuff like that or none of that?
1: I was being trained as, for infantry. So I became an expert sharpshooter, an huh. e- expert in bayonet, and those are on my discharge record, uh, wow. uh, when I finally left the Marine Corps. So I was at that time essentially trained as a rifleman. When I got further into and overseas, I became an intelligence scout.
3: So when so you're getting shipped overseas, you're getting shipped out.
1: We're being shipped from Camp Lejeune in North Carolina to San Diego, where the troop ships uh, were to be boarded.
3: And you knew this was it, did you, presumably?
1: Yes. And we, what we knew at the time was that we were going to participate in island hopping strategy of the Marines on the pathway to Japan. And so... A number of us uh, looked at maps of the various islands and named them with women's names. Huh. And then we wrote to our parents and gave them the code so we would be able to tell them when we were out in the Pacific where we were. We would send a note saying, I just met Helen uh, at so and so. So.
3: Right. Right. How amazing. So th- there must have been quite a sense of trepidation, wasn't there? I mean, as you're reaching San Diego. I mean, San Diego itself is a long way from Manhattan.
1: Yes, but trepidation is a mild word for fear. And uh, <laughs> yes. fear, fear became uh, a very omnipresent emotion uh, I can it, well It was imagine. the fear of anticipation, which was different from the fear that you felt once you were in combat and on the island. It was the f- anticipation, not knowing what the future would be like, and we were all worried.
3: And you're leaving America, and the, the, the land is, is disappearing over the horizon and all that, and you... Yeah, I mean, you must wonder whether you're ever going to make it back, and all those sort of thoughts. It's, um, I mean, it's quite a thing, isn't it, to 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 to, to sail off to war?
1: Yeah, it, you're absolutely right, and I'll just bookend for the moment the opposite, which was sailing under the Golden Gate Bridge, returning after the war into San Francisco. Mm. A very different set of emotions. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I can imagine. And it's also, it's a heck of a long way, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, it's not a, you know, it, you, you really are the other side of the world.
1: Yes, we were on big troop ships and we were stacked three or four of high in the holes. And so we sailed from San Diego to Guam. Mm. And I can't remember whether it was on Guam or on the next stop of Saipan and Tinian, that we transferred from the troop ships to LSTs that had the landing crafts in their bowels. But once we got, it was either Guam or it was Saipan Tinian, once we arrived there, we were in, from that point on, we were in LSTs, landing ship tanks and uh, right. did some practicing going over the side into uh, mm-hmm. the tractors and uh, down the rope ladders and into the tractors. Uh, but then once we left uh, Tinian, we were on our way to Iwo.
3: And did you know that? Do we, yes. Were you told? When were you briefed?
1: We were told that we were heading for Iwo Jima once we left that uh, area. And uh, I'll tell you that the night before we were to land, we were standing offshore from EWO. Uh, a colonel came up on, and had us fall out on deck on the LST and said, tomorrow night at this time, uh, a lot of you are going to be dead. Sea when you get hit, fall forward. We need that extra six feet.
3: Goodness me, that's 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 not much of a pep talk in my book.
1: That's the Marine Corps. It was at that time. It's very different now. So we wound up offshore, could see the island. It was under constant bombardment from the Navy ships, and it was a kind of bombardment that had been going on for Many, many days. So you couldn't think that anyone could be alive on the island.
3: That's amazing.
1: And so it was a shock. I bet it was.
3: I, I, can't, I can't even begin to imagine what must have been going through your mind. then. That, you know, this is your first time in in action, isn't it? And you, yes. You've, you've done all your training. You've crossed the oceans. You've been to Guam. You've done Tinian. You've done yet more training. And then this is the big one. You know, it's February. I mean, so this was on day one. This is the night before the invasion. So this is... Right. You're watching this on the 18th of February and going in the following day.
1: Right. The thing is that I was with my fellow Marines in the unit I was in, had been through the earlier 4th Marine Division invasions. So they had been on Saipan and Tinian. So I was with seasoned veterans who had made landings previously, and we were all together, and they had shared lots of their experiences. But for me and others who were recruited uh, later, we had no idea what it was going to be like.
3: And, and these these men you were with, were they they firm friends by this stage? I mean, yes. you know, was there a, a yes. sense of camaraderie and shared experience?
1: Absolutely. It became one of the really strengthening experiences was the closeness that you felt uh, with uh, your buddies. And I right. don't use the term buddies very often, but that's how you felt about them. So... You were with them, you were looking after them as they were looking after you, and we all knew that we we had to keep an eye on each other from that point on.
3: Right, right. So the big day arrives.
1: Yes. We're out on deck, and the bombardment is ear-splitting on the beach. You see the beach, see the island, it's daylight, And then what happens is you go over the side, climb down the nets to a waiting amphibious tractor, and then the tractor leaves the side of the troop ship and forms into a wave uh, of other tractors. And then you circulate in those uh, tractors uh, waiting for the go. And they're all lined up as waves. So the first wave got in, the second wave got in, the third wave got in, and I was in the fourth wave. About 20 minutes after nine on DJ.
3: 19th of February, 1945.
1: Right. The first wave had hit the beach about nine and the other waves were coming in. The interesting thing is that to allow the the first wave to get in all of our navy ships had to lift the bombardment of the beach so our troops our troops could get in and those early waves therefore were not being bombarded by the japanese because they were still hiding in the caves while they were the beach was being bombarded by the Navy ships. By the time the fourth wave hit, my wave, the Japanese had pulled their artillery out of the caves and were bombing every inch of the beach that we were landing on. So the first couple of waves got in essentially and off the beach before the Japanese were bombarding the beach. Our tractor hit the beach. It was supposed to take us up off the beach to the airstrip and it got got stuck at the edge of the beach. Couldn't move. The sand was so loose, it couldn't get any traction. So there we are sitting in a tractor, uh, artillery exploding on all sides, tractor unable to move. So we jumped out of the tractor into the water, ran around Mm -hmm. to the front, hit the beach. I hit the beach hard, looked over to my left, and there was a Marine on his back with a bubble of blood coming out of his mouth. And that was my first introduction to war. Wow.
3: Must have been absolutely. I mean, your senses must just be going, working on overdrive, aren't they? I mean, how how can you compute all that? I mean, the the sound, the noise, the mayhem, the the man next to you bleeding out. I mean, I, I don't know how you would how how you sort of can absorb all that.
1: Well, that's one of the things I think that the Marine Corps was seeking to accomplish, and that is that you just do what you're supposed to do. So, you know, we got up and ran and we jumped into a bomb crater. And we were in one bomb crater when a Japanese artillery shell hit on the crater rim. And uh, one of the guy's intestines hit the other guy and, uh, and a piece of spent shrapnel lodged in my back. It was a superficial wound and it got taken care of later, but it was what gave me the Purple Heart.
3: And that's all in the first five minutes or so?
1: Probably in the first hour.
3: Yeah but that's, i mean incredible isn't it you're circling around the water then you're jumping out then you're hitting the beach and first casualties this cacophony this terrible cacophony of noise sh- artillery fire coming over in a shell hole everyone people getting hit i mean so much happening in such a short space of time
1: yeah all you could do is you'd go from one crater to the next crater. You'd run when a shell had finished exploding. You'd get out of the crater you were in. You'd run up toward the airfield uh, and you'd jump in another crater and hide out till the next barrage was over. And the whole effort, though, was to gain ground away from the beach.
3: So where did you end up on day one?
1: Uh, we were in a bomb crater, uh, spent the night there. We had not yet reached the the airfield. Actually, the island was like a, a pork chop. And so mm. to the left uh, was the end of the pork chop with Mount Suribachi mm-hmm. occupying that tail of the island. And the rest of the pork chop, was on high above on high cliffs on the right that's where the major battles took place i landed on blue what was called blue beach 1 that was the fourth uh, marine division's beach and my regiment was the 25th regiment and i was in the headquarters company of the 4th Marine Division, 25th Regiment. My job then was to be a scout. And our mission was to turn to the right from the beach that we landed on and go up those cliffs to the high ground to the Northwest of us. And so that's what became just day after day of slaughter. Uh, The Japanese were totally entrenched in caves and come out, you'd rarely see what you were shooting at. And that became a major source of frustration for all of the Marines. They felt they were fighting an enemy they couldn't see. That was our feeling. And uh, that frustration led to... Things that shouldn't have happened and in the way in which uh, some of the caves were incinerated and so on. But uh, it was day after day like that with people being killed on all sides of you. So after I think it was about four days, we were pulled back from the front line and given an opportunity to send one letter home. And I wrote to my parents and said goodbye.
3: Really? But you just had no, no chance?
1: Right. I said, that uh, uh, I don't think I'm going to get off this island alive. And I wanted to thank them for everything they had done. My mother kept that letter, as a matter of fact, for quite a long time. You were just surrounded by casualties. And it, it was a really difficult time.
3: Do, do you Did you sort of become fatalistic? do you think I mean you'd obviously accepted that that you thought the chances are you were going to get killed but 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 were you resigned to that or or were you still sort of was a, was there a sense of hope or or at all or, or how, how did you come to terms with that? because you know you' you're, you're what nineteen, twenty years old, something like that and
1: and yeah, it's a, that's a hell of a thing to confront well i I had an expectation that I was gonna get killed. And that stayed with me throughout every one of the 28 days that I was in combat. But at the same time, there was a countervailing sense that there was a way to go forward. That, and you just had to take that as what was animating you for each step that you made
3: incredible i mean it's it's it must seem like it's never going to end uh, although it, it, you know or, or that it would only end with with death and and yeah you just you just i mean is there a sense of sort of just being being of you feeling sort of completely trapped and, and that you're there and there's nothing you can do about it and you're this little pawn in some bigger events and
1: well yes but you also you had your duties like I was charged with knowing where the troops had to be.
3: Yes, because you're an intelligence scout, aren't you? So.
1: Yes, and uh, and I was in charge of maps of the area, and I could show the emplacements that had been identified by air, uh, right, and so on. So I I had a a task that had to be completed because people depended on it. And so that kept me going, and I always, in the back of my head, I thought at any moment I could get hit, and that was it. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one story that was uh, I keep remembering and thinking back over. Uh, as I said, the Japanese were hidden in caves, and a major frustration was not seeing the enemy of just firing at mm-hmm. where you knew fire was coming toward you. But at one point, a live Japanese soldier was captured, and um, he was brought to our company headquarters.
3: Gosh, that must, that's quite a rarity.
1: Yes, it's total rarity. I had not seen myself a live Japanese, I'd seen lots of corpses, but I hadn't seen the live Japanese myself to that point. He was disarmed and I was designated to take him back to the beach where the command central was and where there were Japanese translators available. So this was a major asset who could have information, that was valuable for our troops. So there I am, 20 years old, with a Japanese prisoner with the mission of taking that prisoner back through our lines, through Marines who had never seen a live Japanese down to the beach where we had landed. So I'm pointing my rifle at him and I'm giving instructions with gestures to start moving. And he moved and we went back. And as we got through some of the lines, particularly the artillery people who were in the rear and, and never got to see the enemy. And at one point, a Marine comes running toward us saying, I'm gonna kill that son of a bitch. And I had to point my rifle at him and say, I have orders to shoot anyone who touches my prisoner. He stopped and looked at me. I had my rifle pointed at his chest and he turned around and walked away. And that happened another time on the way down. And that's what what I was saying before. I've toyed with that memory. I I don't know whether I really would have pulled that trigger. But, uh, you know, I worry that I would have because it was an order.
3: Yep. But you managed to get him there safe and sound.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. I was so happy to push him toward the entrance to the tent and turn around and go.
3: Yeah, I bet you were. I bet you were. We'll be back in just a tick. So then you went back up to the front again?
1: Yes, and stayed there to the end of the battle. I'll tell you another uh, aspect of this, uh, which s- says something about me. One morning, I, I, I got up out of the hole I was spending the night in, and there was a dead Japanese soldier not far from my hole, and the Marines were collecting Japanese flags as souvenirs.
3: Oh, yeah. These flags, are, they, they, they have their flags, don't they? They're, they're like they're, It's like a family thing, isn't it? All the families, the Japanese family yeah. writes on it and gives good luck messages and stuff, and it's their most precious belonging.
1: Right, and it's wrapped around their waist uh, under their clothing. And so uh, it was qu- a quiet few uh, moments and so I got up to get my souvenir and I went over to him and I leaned over and I looked at him I looked at his shirt and I could see there were letters in his pocket and as I looked at those I was I was aware that I had letters in my pocket and it was an epiphany for me and I looked at him this corpse and I saying to myself, "What are we doing? How is this? How is this a way of solving whatever?" And it has impacted me in a way that I could see. And I don't know if you've seen any of Clint Eastwood's uh, films about.
3: I have seen that. Yeah.
1: The sense of that we were the same. We were. Mm. We were pawns, we were just, and so, you know, having that sense in that moment was very revelatory for me about war. And I made a resolve that I would never go to war again if I survived.
3: And he never did and I never had to do it, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Those flags—they're—they're they're actually rather moving, aren't they? That what's it—the Hinamaru, I think, is what it's called. It's so like a good luck flag, and it—and it's—and it's quite a thing, you know. Literally, every every drafted Japanese soldier had one. You can see why there would be such a, a thing to capture and take as a souvenir yeah. from an American point of view.
1: Well, I actually was able to carry that flag back home when I had it all the way home. I actually had a Japanese rifle and I had a Japanese hand grenade, uh, which I was able to take home. And I, I've had it on my desk, and here is a picture of it.
3: Uh, oh, my goodness. Look, there you are. I can see you. You're holding <laughs> yeah. it up now.
1: Yeah. And so this is Gosh, the don't old... pull the pin, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you can see... There's not a metal pull on the pin. It tells you what the economy was like in Japan at the time. They were using cord to pull the pin on a grenade. So you shouldn't get concerned. I've disarmed this uh, grenade. And it just <laughs> it sits on my desk to remind me what war is really about. Yeah, amazing.
3: But you survived, obviously, and and it must have seemed like a miracle when the battle was over and you were still in one piece.
1: Yes, it, you know, I've I've thought about it. I it stays, it has stayed with me, and I'm sure it has strengthened me in many ways. But mm. I I think it also gave me a better sense of uh, of what it is to be human. Mm.
3: Do you, I mean, why do you think you were spared? I mean, was is that just luck? I mean, is it just pure chance or or, or were you, did you sort of get a sixth sense of incoming danger or, or was it sort of a combination of all those things?
1: It's total luck.
3: Total, just random.
1: Absolutely. I went down uh, when the, when we secured the north end of the island after 28 days, we turned around and, marched back to the beaches that we had landed on where we were going to board troop ships. I got down to the beach and the entire beach was covered with crosses for temporary graves. And you just stood at one end of the beach as you approached down from the high ground to the beach and looked out and there were thousands of crosses and 7,000 Marines were killed on that island. And it, the fact that I wasn't was just totally fortuitous.
3: Yep. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, and a total total casualties of, of over 27,000, weren't there? I mean, because for everyone who's dead, there's another man who's lost a leg or got shrapnel, mm-hmm. and various parts of the body i mean even you were you were i mean you were a casualty in a way weren't you because you've got your shrapnel on your back so i mean yeah amazing and 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 can you remember leaving the island it must be such an odd sensation you because because one minute you're landing there against you know in this huge barrage and guns firing and total carnage you spend 28 days on the island in this total, and then suddenly it's all over you kind of always think with the thing with war is and i remember a german saying to me he said um a German paratrooper. And I remember standing with him at, at the top of casino and he'd, he'd just embraced a, a British veteran and they realized they'd been fighting against one another. And he was really thoughtful and quiet in the car. And I said, Oh, you know, you okay. And he said, I just, what was it all about? And, and, you know, if you can, if you can make, make peace, why do you have to start in the first place? And, yeah. You know, it sounds, sounds like you had a very similar, similar epiphany of thoughts. Yeah. I mean.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the thing about leaving it, while we were fighting and while we were in combat, we could look out and see the naval ships, the destroyers and, that were lined up out there uh, providing support. And so, and we knew that those people were eating hot meals. And taking showers every night. And so they became a substitute enemy for us. And uh, we kept talking about the swab jockeys out there which is what we call them, uh, with their hot meals and clean sheets and so on. So when we left and boarded the troop ships, we looked down on the sailors who were <laughs> bringing us back. I should say that the original mission that we were on was to take Iwo Jima in four or five days then board the ships and head for Japan. We were so, we had abandoned our training base on Maui. We were so destroyed that the plan had to change. We boarded those troop ships and went back to Maui and reopened our training base and began to train for a later invasion of of Japan and then what saved us was the bombing of Hiroshima, which ended the war. And we cheered and cheered when we knew that. And it took me years later to realize what an awful thing that was. And it's a cause of debate now and still, uh, but I have no doubt that there were alternatives to incinerating people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I actually later on met an atomic physicist who had participated at Los Alamos in the construct development and construction of the bomb. His name is Philip Morrison. I met him at a friend's house here in Boulder. And we spent the evening talking about the atomic bomb of Hiroshima. He had the detonating mechanism on his lap from uh, the US to Tinian where it was loaded on the bomber. And he spent the evening crying about his role in that. And I came to feel the same about the use of the bomb.
3: Yeah but you've got you know you uh, you you grew older you you've got different perspectives but but you can understand why you would have cheered at, at the moment as a young man who's who's escaping <laughs> what you've already escaped certain death once so you know no one wanted to invade japan did they i mean no
1: absolutely
3: there's a big argument whether it could have been you know whether you could starve japan out i mean not much shipping was getting in anyway uh, and and you know, and it was it was on his knees. I mean, Japan was on its knees. I am something like eighty eight percent of its of its economy was devoted to defense. I mean, yeah, you know, UK is not even three yeah. percent <laughs> now. I mean, you know, it's just I extraordinary.
1: The argument is whether they could have done, done a demonstration on an unoccupied island and shown what the bomb could do, uh, but uh, there was fear that was driving it and. There's a wonderful book called uh, Brighter Than a Thousand uh, Suns that says the energy to get that bomb done and demonstrated just was on tracks that couldn't be stopped. And so Nagasaki, which there was no need to, but it was detonated after Hiroshima. And uh, the idea was to say we've got lots of bombs, so here's two of them.
3: Yeah, and I and I and let's face it, they didn't surrender after the first bomb. I mean, the strategic bombing in the Second World War is 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 it's it's, it's still so hotly debated, isn't it? I mean, yeah. all I'd say is is you know a lot of people who get in on the bait, you know, they weren't there, they hadn't just been through you know between four and six years of war, they hadn't you know. there's You have to kind of put yourself back in the shoes of the people that are making the decisions. I I agree with you, though. I do think there was a kind of sort of a a momentum, a sort of runaway train that that having built and designed and experimented this thing, that they were going to see it through. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, you know, Truman wasn't going to stop it. But it's amazing when you when you look at Truman and um, you look at his his victory speech on the 8th of May, 1945, when when Germany's fallen, it's pretty somber.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
3: This is kind of this is this is job half done, not not job completely done. So there might be ticker tape in 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 you know center of New York and everyone screaming and cheering, but but the guys at the top certainly weren't. But but Dick, you know, when you when you got off um Iwo Jima, how many of your original company were left? Do you do you know?
1: I've seen figures that it was like. Thir- between thirty-five and forty percent were left. It was an assassination, in in some sense. So we went back to Maui uh, to train for the Japanese invasion. We mm-hmm. w- there were six of us in a tent on in this area above uh, Makawao, on, which is above Kahului on on the island of Maui. And so every night, one or two of our tent mates went down to the PX and brought back a case of beer. And then began, after the dinner, began a recitation of everything that happened day after day on Iwo Jima. And every night we would relive and somebody would say, you remember when that bomb went off and -and so-and-so lost his left leg and and he was screaming and so on. There were five of us who had been on EWO in that tent and we had one replacement who was uh, new, had not been in combat. And he, every night in our tent, he listened to what we were doing, reliving the war. And finally, one night he blew up and said, I'm tired of listening to this same thing over and over every night. I'm just sick of it. And you guys have got to stop it. And one of the tent mates named Red Kelly remembers that I stood up and pointed my finger at this replacement and said, you can't tell us what we can talk about and how much we can talk. We fought for freedom, and that's what the fight was about, and you can't tell us not to do what we want to do. So you can see I was a pedant even back in those days. (laughs) So I'll just finish this little story by saying in – I lost touch with the Marine Corps totally after I got uh, discharged. And the Marines were meeting every year. Our 4th Marine Division had an annual meeting, and I didn't attend. And one day I was back at Yale, I had gone back to Yale to finish up. And it was in the early 90s, 1990. and. I get a letter from Yale, enclosing another letter. The Yale letter said, we've received a letter inquiring about you, whether you were dead or alive, and so on. And we couldn't respond to that, so we were forwarding the letter to you. It was from Red Kelly, the guy who... And so uh, it had his phone. I called him immediately, and we talked. And he said, Dick... I said, what have you been doing, Red? And he said, I've been teaching American history at the high school level. And every class I've had heard about Dick Jesser. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I tell them a story about you standing up and telling this replacement that we fought for free speech. And so... (laughs) that that made me that realize I, yeah i was born to be a pedant
3: <laughs> so you got eventually i mean the war so, so you you're you're training with the fourth for the invasion of japan that doesn't happen the war's over how soon are you back going under that having that lovely um sail under the golden gate
1: i was actually discharged from great lakes on February nineteenth,
3: nineteen forty-six. So, literally, year to the day after the start of Iwo Jima. Uh,
1: and so, February nineteenth is a big day in our family. Uh, so, wow. I Isn't was not amazing. I was discharged from. We'd come under the, the Golden Gate, and by train got to Great Lakes, and I was discharged, and I immediately went back to Yale. Under the GI Bill, the semester had already started, but I had one semester to finish. And so I immediately went back. Imagine coming from my discharge Mm. to the bucolic grounds of Yale University and finished the semester. They allowed me to, to take the semester, even though it had begun. And I got my BA in June of that year. And from then on, it's history.
3: You'd spent seven Well, when did you move to? You moved to Colorado. Yeah, I mean, you were seventy years in Colorado. Right. I, so it can't be I, mean that long after you I, left Yale.
1: After Yale, I uh, my father was ill with uh, cancer, and uh, oh, I'm sorry. Living in New York with my mother, so I I wanted to stay east and. So I enrolled at Columbia for a master's degree in psychology, and that way I was on the East Coast and could visit him. And then I went and to... And
3: incidentally, a, your brother your brother su- survived as well. He,
1: he survived. He wasn't wounded. And, and the sense I have from him is he never really was in really active combat. So uh, he Good. never spoke about... It. So I... Uh, went to Ohio State for my doctorate in clinical psychology. And uh, then a professor who had been at Ohio State and had known me came to Colorado for a job in the psychology department. And when there was an opening, he wrote me and said, would you like to come to Colorado? And my wife at that time and I, uh, she was also a Ph.D. in psychology. Uh Decided we'd go to Colorado to slum for a couple of years, and then go on to civilization, either the West Coast <laughs> or back to the East Coast. Well, I got involved out here in rock climbing and mountaineering, and so on. And there was no way I would ever leave Colorado.
3: <laughs> was that, I mean the. The picture you were you were painting for me when we when we first started talking before we came on air was lovely with the bears and mountain lions <laughs> and mountains and and so on. It's um it's a lovely part of the U.S., isn't it?
1: Yes, yeah, it's great. To be, it's been great to hear. And of course, my work as a behavioral scientist has taken me around the world. Anyway, I have research right. in China and in. Kenya and in Cairo and so on so Mm. I get to see I've gotten to see the world and I've had a wonderful base out here and Mm. I have a colleague she's my wife and she's made my years more wonderful than I can think
3: Oh well, that's a that's a lovely thing to say. But I mean, do you, did you, I mean during the, your younger years when you were sort of getting on with your your career and your academic studies and then moving to Boulder and so on, did you give the war much thought? Or, or I mean, did were you able to kind of sort of compartmentalize that part of your life? Is is it kind of have you noticed it's something as you've got older that you've you've thought about it a bit more?
1: Yeah, I I don't know if I told you about this uh, when we talked the first time, but um, I would think about it in, you know, in a way that was remote, that didn't have a lot of emotions. I would remember that I had done this and done that and, and uh, that it was an important part of my life, but... Uh, I I may have mentioned, we were up in Aspen, could have been about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, and we were seeing private, saving private Ryan. And we're sitting in this theater in Aspen, this movie theater, and all of a sudden, I, I began to shake, and tears came out. I was trying and sobbing. And Jane says, what's happening? And, uh, and she held me. And while this is happening, I'm thinking, I'm a psychologist. I should have known that this is going to happen to me. But I was unaware that that situation of seeing the landing was so embedded in me that unawares, it, it just rose to the surface so i look back on things now in trying to be rational and i i think as i said at one point if i could get through iwo i can get through anything and i have a sense that it gave me a kind of strength i would not not have had had i not had that experience and maybe a deeper sensitivity about what's important in life and in the world.
3: Wow. Well, Dick, that's been just fascinating, illuminating. Um an absolute privilege to hear your memories. So I can't thank you enough.
1: Well, I really appreciate very much having this opportunity and getting to meet you and obviously what you're doing is is really important. So I'm happy to be a contributor.
3: Well, thank you all for, for listening. Um, Professor Dick Jesser, an Iogima veteran. That was quite an hour of conversation, I have to say. Thank you.
1: Great. Take care.
0: Hello there. Al Murray here. Now, as one or two of you may know, I'm partial to a glass or two of an evening sometimes beer, quite often these days, wine. In fact, wine has appeared more than once in the pod, from stories of British soldiers discovering a hidden stash as they crossed the Rhine, to James and I trying a bottle of Ukrainian sweet wine, bottled in 1939, and spirited away as the Germans approached in 1941. And now, as a listener to We Have Ways, you can enjoy a free case of wine, courtesy of our good friends at Wine 52. All you need to do is go to Wine52.com slash and cover the postage costs of £9.95 and you'll get three bottles delivered to your door. I absolutely love trying wines from different countries and Wine52 showcases revered regions like Bordeaux and Emilia-Romagna but also exceptional wines from countries like Georgia and Bulgaria. This fantastic wine club takes you on an incredible odyssey through the world of wine. You can have the choice of mixed, red-only or white-only cases. And you also get Glug magazine, which delves into each region's wine culture, plus two tasty snacks. Your welcome case will include the beautiful Meridiano by Compagna Mediterranea del Vino, a complex red with notes of blackberry, cherry and plum jam on the nose. And a lovely white wine called Lucassia by Agrestivini, a light and crisp wine with fresh notes of gooseberry, honeysuckle and jasmine. After your free case, you'll join the monthly wine club. No minimum commitment. If it's not for you, pause or cancel at any time. So remember, that's wine52.com ways to claim your free case of wine today. Enjoy.